Today, I have a guest who, if you would have said to me 12 years ago as I sat next to him at a hospital deposition, questioning the actions of a healthcare provider who missed my mom's heart attack signs, if you would have said that today I would be sharing him with you on a patient safety radio show, I would have said, you're kidding. Well, guess what? You're not, because today with me, I have Steve Crandall. Steve Crandall has been a top trial lawyer in Ohio and Kentucky for over 25 years. Steve has been rated as a top 100 lawyer in Ohio by Super Lawyers Magazine for over 10 years, a top 10 lawyer multiple times, as well as being awarded the Medical Malpractice Lawyer of the Year in 2019 by Best Lawyers in America. Steve began his career as a defense lawyer defending medical malpractice claims. As a defense lawyer, Steve tried over 100 cases to verdict throughout Ohio on behalf of many insurance companies and hospitals. But in 2001, he took this experience and changed the focus of his practice to representing injured individuals and their families against the same insurance and medical industries he once represented. This experience in the courtroom, combined with the knowledge of how the insurance industry evaluates claims, makes Steve quite a unique lawyer. And he is also going to be a contributor to my charity patient safety anthology book titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare. And I am looking forward to sharing a perspective from the legal side. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Pat. Nice to talk to you again. Oh my gosh, I've been wanting to share you on this program for such a long time. So I am so happy to be here today doing it with you, which makes me ask the question because you saw a Facebook post where we posted that we were creating this anthology and you responded. So I wanted to know, why did you want to be part of this anthology? I think mostly because I've been involved in medical negligence for 25 years, but most importantly, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've been with physicians and hospitals when they're defending a case, and I've been on the other side of it. So I feel like I bring not only a unique perspective, but I, I also feel I try to be extremely objective about care that's provided. I know how difficult it is for the medical providers. I know they want to do well. That's why they went to school. And then I also know that unfortunately the, the system is set up so there's a lot of negligence out there. And so I think it's important for people to look at this issue from both sides. And I've kind of lived that. So I thought it was very interesting to talk to you. I always thought that your dual experience is quite a benefit to clients. You know, more than what I think physicians would think, because there's a lot of people who call me, they just don't know exactly what happened. And so I give them that explanation. But along with it, I tell them that this was just a tragedy, that no one made a mistake. No one was negligent on the medical side. And I think that gives them the closure that they need. And I do that far more often than I tell someone that there's been negligence. When we think about medical malpractice lawsuits, everybody seems to have their thoughts. Some say it's an attack on medical professionals, that it contributes to high-priced defensive insurance. Others say it forces healthcare providers to maintain acceptable standards of care. Some say, you know, I'm doing this for the principal thing. Everybody has an opinion on or a conception of it. What in your mind, from what you've seen, what is the biggest misconception about medical malpractice lawsuits? I think right off the bat, the biggest misconception is that there's a lot of crazy, unwarranted awards for patients. 
you know, I'm not saying that that wasn't the case decades ago, but I think really in the 90s, Carl Rove and George Bush, uh, the second George W., they really swept the reform movement into the country. And as a result, there were many, many laws passed, both state and federal. And it's such that, that honestly, it is a, an uphill battle for a patient to receive any type of reasonable compensation, even in situations where there's just plain negligence. So I would say the awards that, that they read about in the newspaper, there's a reason why they're in the newspaper, and that's because they're so infrequent. It's newsworthy. And so I think that's the biggest misconception. These doctors, they have a tough job, but I'll tell you what, in the courtroom, they have everything stacked in their favor, and they, they definitely have the safeguards that and then some, you know, that they need. I remember when we encountered this for the first time, it was not something I knew about, and it's called tort reform that basically puts these caps, whether the person suffered more or, or not, that seems like it places additional obstacles to justice. It does. You know, it's interesting because you hear so much about the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment obviously deals with the right to bear arms. And so you hear a lot about that. Even when someone wants to put, any politician wants to put controls on guns, you know, you can't buy bump stocks, you can't buy high-capacity magazines. You know, people, whether you think this is right or, or not, they, they go crazy, and they, they fight for every single inch of the Second Amendment. Well, the Seventh Amendment, which guarantees a right, you know, by jury of your peers, that's just as important. But yet people, the common citizen, they don't realize how much of the Seventh Amendment has been torn apart by these tort reforms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what these reforms have done is take a case that has merit, that experts have said there was negligence, and then a jury has said has merit and deserves damages. And then when that jury leaves the room, they don't even know this occurs. A judge comes in with these laws and says, hey, you know that award? that the jury said was reasonable, we're going to cut it by two-thirds. And so what that's really done is I think it's led to worse medical care because the doctors and the hospitals, they know that even if they made a mistake and even if I go through this uphill battle and get a verdict for my client who was a patient, they're protected financially. And so really it takes all the risk and when you take away the risk for those doctors, they're, they're not going to make the changes that make it safer for the patients out there. And I, I don't think people realize what tort reform is until something really bad happens to them or a family member. And it's an amazing conversation. Then they're kind of like, you know, when did this happen and how is this fair? Absolutely. I was one of those people. I had no idea until it happens to you. And then your your eyes are wide open. And, and as you say, looking at the Seventh Amendment, we're almost teetering on unconstitutional. I agree. It's, it's, you know, it's strange to me that a jury on a criminal side could come collectively to a decision that someone is guilty of a crime. And in most of the states in our great union, they could actually decide that, that person is put to death. But yet, those same jurors, if you take a civil case and a medical malpractice case, somehow they lose the common sense and intelligence to come up with what the verdict amount should be. And that just doesn't make sense. What we're getting at is the, the real thing behind all these tort reform caps are 
corporations and insurance companies that want unfettered ability to ask for premiums from doctors. Like, look, we're going to charge you X amount of dollars to insure you. Give us that money. And then when it comes to risk on that insurance, they get these caps that make it so they can't lose very much. And the pawns in all this are not only the patients, but it's the physicians too. Yes, thank you. That's unfortunate. Thank you for saying that. I was just going to say it is the physicians too, because their their hands are tied. They can't speak. They can't say anything because the business side of all of this is taking over. And that's bringing me to my next thought. In this book, we're looking to find a way to bring heart to healthcare. What about apology laws? So when a healthcare provider makes a mistake or something goes wrong, I am positive that he or she wishes to apologize to the patient and family, but those apologies could be used as evidence in court to prove wrongdoing or liability, and that the idea of an apology could smooth over emotions and prevent possible lawsuits has given the rise to the creation of apology laws. Are we finding that apologies decrease or increase the occurrence of lawsuits? Well, the first question I think when a physician sits down and is honest and apologizes and explains what happened, that can definitely decrease the incidence of a lawsuit. Um, People understand, they show empathy and emotion, and I think that them less likely to file a case. The most important aspect of that is that they get an explanation. And remember I said, you know, a lot of times people come to me and just say, I don't even know what happened. So I think if inside that apology is an explanation, that can result in less lawsuits being filed. The problem is what the physicians know now is that if I just said I'm sorry, along with anything else I admit, then it it can't be used against me. And so a lot of times families come to me and say, listen, the doctor admitted that the nurse was negligent. The physician admitted that they didn't get the results of the tests and they should have. But the minute they say that they're sorry, that's like it never happened and it's wiped away. Mm-hmm. But then as I proceed through the litigation, guess what the defense does with those the test results or the nurse's negligence? They just deny that any of those things ever really happened, and they defend the case as if the apology and the admission never happened because it, it was wiped out by those laws. I don't think the laws are fair to the patient at all. As you were saying that, I was also thinking that if a doctor came to you and said, oh, the nurse was negligent, well, maybe the patient wouldn't have known that and that just that conversation could trigger the thought that, hey, maybe we need to pursue legal action that they might not have thought of before. This is like a real two-edged sword. It is. And, you know, the other thing about it is there's a lot of times people will say, you know, well, your client said this or your client said that, and they'll use that in the litigation. But there's a law that's out there that says that if the doctor said something that would hurt his chances in litigation, his or hers, that I can't use that. So I don't really see the fairness in these apology statutes. If certain things can be wiped clean, it really doesn't make it Mm -hmm. fair for either side. I know as I look back, all I wanted personally was for someone to acknowledge the mistakes by saying, you know, I'm sorry this happened. Nobody even had to say who did it or admit guilt. Just a simple recognition of the fact that something went wrong or we see that you're here every single day for four months. Here's a parking pass or have a tuna sandwich on us in the cafeteria. I mean, obviously, litigation is wasn't on my menu. It's not on most people's menu when they enter the hospital. 
Do you think a simple human interaction would likely have prevented me from meeting you? I think so. I, I can't tell you how many times something happened. You know, let's just not color it as negligence. Negligence, let's say a negligent act or even just, you know, what physicians call recognized complication. In other words, you do 100 procedures, you do them the same way every time, but you have a bad result. In either of those cases, what I've seen a lot is almost like a human avoidance. You know, something bad happens, someone dies, someone has a terrible event, and the physician who is involved in it avoids the family, sends their partner, sends a nurse extender or physician extender, and they never sit down and just have that human interaction and an explanation of what happened. And so that does two things. You know, one, I've already said, they come looking for what happened. And two, it makes the person angry. Yes. And it makes them feel like no one really cared about their loved one. And that's a lot of the times why they go see an attorney. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew what happened because the doctor who I did not know found me the next day in the hallway and grabbed my arm, pulled me into a conference room and handed me a manila envelope, shut the door. And he said to me, this stinks and you need to do something about it. And inside were those EKG rhythm strips that clearly showed at the top acute myocardial infarction in progress. So for the next four months, I knew what happened and I was able to watch people and realize that nobody was going to say anything to me. And as you say, that's what made me angry. And that's what made me think somebody needs to be held accountable. And if I don't bring this to light, this system is never going to get changed. So, you know, I think there really is a case for people being forthright and treating the patient and family with heart and with honesty right up front so that they, this can all get cleared up somehow in the beginning rather than at the back end. I agree. You know, there's that saying that when you make the right decision, you know, you can't be wrong. And I think that applies to everything in life. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the fear of litigation, the fear of a lawsuit, the fear of it affecting your career negatively changes the way care providers communicate with patients after they know negligence has occurred. They just try to ignore it. They try to act like it didn't happen. They try to hide it in some respect. And, you know, the bottom line is it's not right. But what motivates them is this fear of litigation and this fear of having their career hurt by negligence. And I get that. I mean, I would, sure. I, I assume I would feel the same way. You know, when you're frightened, I think you do things you might not normally do just to save yourself. So I get it. And I think most people do get it. So my point was to try to think that we could force a system change. Do you think that malpractice wins? So let's say when the family member or the, the patient wins a medical malpractice lawsuit, does that do anything to positively change the culture or the system behaviors within the hospitals? Do they learn how to do better based on this? I think they do. There have been cases that I've won that have changed the system. And interestingly, there are cases that I've lost where a jury didn't agree with what I was saying, or they might have agreed that, you know, mistakes were made, but they didn't want to hold that physician liable for whatever reason. And even though I lost, I knew walking out of the courtroom that, for instance, if material was faxed to the floor, that it wouldn't sit there anymore. They'd never let that mistake happen again because the experience of going through litigation was so negative. The one thing I do want to say in defense of physicians that I think is very important is 
the physicians and the nurses are in a much, much different situation than they were 20 years ago. And I think the reason for that is our medical insurance. And if I could just talk about that briefly, I think there's something that's going on with everyone's medical insurance that greatly impacts medical mistakes that happen throughout this country. We all have medical insurance. We've all been to the doctor where you have a visit or a procedure, and we see on that report that comes to us that the doctor may have charged, let's say, $100, but the insurance company is only going to pay $50, right? Yes. We've seen that happen. And what gives the insurance company the right to tell the doctor how much they're going to pay them for what the doctor rightfully charged? It's because they have all the power. You know, they'll just say to the physician, look, accept this $50 for your $100 bill, but we're not going to approve that you can treat our insureds. Mm-hmm. And so the doctor has to go along with it. Well, what happens to that physician or hospital system if the $100 procedure is only going to get $50? Naturally, they run like a business, so they're going to try to get more of those procedures in. You know, in an office-based setting, a pediatrician is going to try to see more moms and dads with their kids. Don't see 10 a day, see 20 a day because they're cutting my bill in half. And so what that's done is it's really changed medical care into a big business. It's made volume a premium, more surgeries, more visits, more EKGs more studies to try to get the money they got this year that they got last year. Most of the medical negligence that I see is a result of this volume of patients and procedures really just exhausting those poor care providers. I mean, these people are exhausted. Nurses have too many patients. Doctors have seen too many patients in the office. They're on call too often. They're working too long and too late. And so guess what happens when that mom calls late at night with symptoms that should make them send that mom and that baby to the ER to get checked up? They just say, no, 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 it's fine. It's, there's a virus going around. Everything's fine. And I really believe until our government or our society gets more control over these insurance companies, until they stop the tail wagging the dog, everybody out there is going to suffer. I think medical care has gone down as a result. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, which I don't think many people give much consideration to. I know it's a real head scratcher when you get the bill. And, and I think what happens is people feel angry at their doctor. It's like, why is he charging 100 right. when it's only should be 50? You know, what, where does that number come from? Right. And then it gets worse with Medicaid and Medicare, you know, the public assistant programs. Mm-hmm. I'll get a bill, let's say, from a hospital that's for $100,000 for care to one of my clients. And I'll look closely and, and Medicaid maybe only paid 25000 of it. So they're only paying 25% of a bill for that poor hospital. And obviously that's going to result in them trying to cut corners, uh, cut staffing, cut overhead, feed more patients through that hospital. We're only human. People cannot keep up with that type of pace. And as a result, we're getting worse and worse medical care out there. Absolutely. And and you combine all of these, the electronic medical charting. I had a nurse come up to me once crying. She was the only RN on the floor. She grabbed me and hugged me and she said, I'm sorry, I can't help your mom. I am tied to my station here. I've got to do all this charting. I've got to do all of this paperwork. I can't be here to help you. So they're no longer doing the work that they thought that they signed up for. Yeah, I agree. Electronic medical record keeping was 
really kind of forced upon everybody by the government. Yep. I mean, there are certainly advantages to it. Yes. But when I go through a chart and I see the entries that people have to make in these electronic medical records, you see that they're spending more time filling these things out than they are taking care of patients. And the other thing that's important, and you may not know this until you look through these records a lot like I do getting ready for cases, but what it also results in is they do this thing called self-population. So if I see somebody on January 1st and I write out their labs and all this information, then I go on January 2nd, I can drag what I put on January 1st to January 2nd and put it in your chart. Mm -hmm. And what the unfortunate thing is, there may be new labs on January 2nd. There may be more information and different information because your condition changed. But unfortunately, everyone's in such a rush, they self-populate. And so January 2nd looks like the same as January 1st, even though the patient's condition had deteriorated. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that lead to a lot of misdiagnosis and delayed diagnosis you know, simply because of record-keeping issues. Absolutely. I just had a nurse I spoke with the other day was talking about cut and paste, the evil twin. And it's yeah. exactly what you're talking about. And and then the, the case that the system beeps at you saying this is incorrect, that it can be overridden. So what's the point of that? So, yeah, I'm not sure that it's the answer that everyone thought it's going to be. I agree. Yep. Oh, Steve, we could talk forever, couldn't we? Yes, we could. <laughs> As we begin to wrap up, though, let's uh, get back to heart, humor, and honesty. Let's touch on one of those. If you were speaking to a room full of healthcare leaders and you had something to say about one of those, what words of advice would you give? I think I would say that your heart, I know every person in the room that I was talking to wanted to be a healthcare provider for a specific reason, and that was to help others. That's really the, the essence of wanting to be a physician or a nurse or any ancillary care provider. And, I, and my heart's with them because of the system that they're in right now that we discussed. It, it really makes it tough for them to get back to the basics. But I would just say try to think back to, you know, why you wanted to become a physician or nurse and try to carve out just a little bit each day to get back to that essence and try the best they can to fight, you know, the chaos and the volume that's pushed upon them because of our current insurance situation in the country. Because, you know, even if I have a case where I think someone made really, really bad negligent acts, I don't personalize it to think that they meant to do that. Sure. You know, I always feel badly because they didn't mean to be negligent. And, and I always have respect for the physicians and nurses because they got up every day to help somebody. Mm -hmm. So I think just to draw on that uh, may help a patient, may help someone not to make that mistake or, you know, fail to communicate. I agree. No one gets up in the morning and thinks I'm going to go harm somebody. So thank you for those words. I exactly. Think, I think that's extremely helpful. All right. We begin to wrap up. Anything we missed that you wanted to talk about today? There's one thing I just want to make sure people understand quickly about physicians and designations. And, and by no means am I being critical of certain types of physicians, but I want to make sure everyone knows that when you go see a doctor, you really need to do your research in terms of what type of degree they have. For instance, there's actually two different types of medical schools. MD stands for medical degree. That's kind of considered the top-of-the-line medical school that we all think about. Here in Cleveland, it would be Case Western Reserve. There's also a DO designation, Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. 
And I think that's generally regarded as inferior to an MD. I think, to be honest with you, I bet you more than 80% of the people graduated from DO school went there because they couldn't get into an MD school. And so when you're selecting your doctor, make sure you look to see whether it's an MD or a DO. And I would tell you, you probably want to stick with an MD first if you can. And then the last thing I would say, I hear a lot of people say they're going to see a doctor for like foot and ankle. And they don't even realize that that's a podiatrist. A podiatrist didn't graduate from MD school or DO school. They graduated from a podiatry institution, which is far, far inferior to either an MD or DO program. And so I always tell people, look, you got to stop seeing the podiatrist. Don't let them do this extensive surgery on your ankle and your foot, which is a very delicate area of the body. Go see an orthopedic surgeon who has an MD by their name or maybe even a DO, but you'd really want to get yourself into a true, true physician. And, and I, I'm amazed at how few people know that distinction. Thank you. Thank you. We've not talked about that in the past, so this is a new topic for us. Maybe we'll have to dig a little deeper into this as well. Thank you. I think that's extremely important and relevant. Thanks for having well, me. It's been my pleasure. Where can folks go then to learn more about you and how can they contact you? The law firm that I'm a part of is called Crandall and Para, and our website is injuryverdicts.com. When they go to that website, they can see information about my partner, Mark Para, who's in Cincinnati, myself and some of the staff that I have. We, we have several nurses on staff. We also have what I like to hope is some very objective information on medical care in general so people can learn about things that happen to them, and hopefully we can help them out. Yes, your website has a lot of good information on your blog. I always learn a lot from that as well. So it's injuryverdicts.com. We're talking with Stephen Crandall, and you've got offices not only in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chesterland, they're, they're sprinkled about the state and Kentucky, right? That's correct. Yes, we have an office down in Lexington. It's, it's really nice to get down into Kentucky. And we talked about caps. It's interesting to know Kentucky does not currently have caps on damages. So from a standpoint of some of those states, at least Kentucky's one that does not. All right. Steve, any final words before we head out? No, I just want to thank you for your time. And I I want to emphasize that I really respect physicians, nurses, and the institutions we have here. I think my role is to investigate and let patients know what happened. But I really do respect the physicians and nurses out there and i want to thank them for their time and everything that they give to the practice of medicine thank you steve crandall you're the best thank you for being here today you're welcome pat great to talk to you again listen to pat rulo and speak up and stay alive radio stay safe from little known healthcare and hospital hazards to learn more go to speakupandstayalive.com that's speakupandstayalive.com